see here. Hang on one second. Hey, Robert. I think we recorded this last week, right? Can we go ahead and keep recording these? Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, so we are continuing our study that we started last week on church membership. If you didn't get a handout, there's some in the back there by Louise. And if we need a few more, then that's fine. We can run a few more off. So the first chapter was titled, We've Been Approaching It All Wrong. And uh, basically some of the false views that we have in terms of, what's the one from last week? Uh, some of the false views that we have in terms of um, what church is like. Is it just a social club? Is it just a voluntary membership? Is it just a thing that people do just to enjoy one another's company? You know, those sorts of ideas. And the point that he was trying to make is that uh, because this is something over which Christ has authority and under which we are supposed to serve him, it is a very serious and sober commitment that should not be taken lightly and should be followed through on and all of those sorts of things. And so he used the illustration instead of a club of an embassy. What does an embassy do? An embassy represents the nation uh, that has sent the people in the embassy out to another nation and does so by assessing the citizenship of people who come to the embassy, of uh, serving the interests of the country that sent them out. And so he, he says this, he says, there's another kind of embassy that represents a place from the future, which is to say, God's coming kingdom, the church is the embassy of God's coming kingdom, assessing those who are professing to be a part of it, are they genuinely part of God's coming kingdom, uh, not individually, but collectively, and also representing God to the world. And so those are some of the main functions of the local church. And so, if that's the case, then it's kind of a unique situation in that the people who come to the embassy for recognition then become part of it and have the same function for others as well. Uh, so, the chapter 2 is membership sightings in the New Testament. And so, he says it would be helpful if we're going to say what membership is if we do a little sort of a survey trip through the New Testament. He it says it's like buying a piece of land. You want more than the real estate agent's description you want to look around. And so if we traveled back to the early AD 30s, he talks a little bit about the historical setting of that. We come to the church in Jerusalem in Acts 2. What do we find in Acts 2? You don't have to turn your Bible, just sort of tell me, what do we find in Acts 2? What's the church there? Okay, so there's the house idea. Well, how about the composition of the people? Primarily Jewish. Primarily Jewish. From where? And? 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 Israel. What was so significant about Acts 2 when the church is formed? They came together for their Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes, day of Pentecost. What's the thing, Retta? Why did that matter? Where were they all from? All over. 
all over, right? Okay, so they're from all over, speaking all kinds of languages, but primarily Jewish people. So that's the composition of the church in Acts chapter 2. Uh, Parthenians, Mesopotamians, Cappadocians, Asians, and so on. Then they're gathered for the annual Jewish feast, and the Holy Spirit shows up, and they, Peter preaches this sermon in God's power, and then they end up uh, receiving the Holy Spirit, being added to the church. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. There, were, as it, there was at first about 120 gathered with the apostles, right? And then that number quickly swells to several thousands of people. Okay? What does this group look like in Acts 2, 44, 45? Like the end of Acts 2, what does this group look like? What are some things that characterize this group? Some of the things you were just saying a moment ago, but what were some of the things? They had all things in common. common. They're meeting each other's needs. What else? You mentioned the house thing. What were they doing in the houses? They were going out there fellowshipping and praying and doing all the things. Yeah, fellowship, prayer, spending time with one another, receiving food with glad and generous hearts, gathering with one another, uh, gathering at the temple for worship, all these things together, okay? Uh, So that's kind of what it looks like at the beginning. Um... Then there ends up being almost 5,000 okay, of just the men in Acts 4. And then um, what, what are some issues they run into around Acts 6 or so? Saul steps up. Well, before Saul, though. That was more Acts 8. A little bit earlier than that. There's this fight. What was the fight about? Serving. Yeah. Yeah, different ethnicities where their widows being neglected, okay? Um, so they have to sort of navigate through that, and then they, uh, they work through that with God's help. Um, they are highly regarded by the people at first, and then public opinion changes. And then there's this idea of Saul and all the things that God does with him. And then... Um, if, if we, in this theoretical survey trip, he says this, we decide it's time for a meeting to begin sifting through the data. One of us suggests the possibility that God purposely sent all these international citizens to Jerusalem for Pentecost and then purposely allowed persecution to come so the converts would be scattered across international borders. That seems pretty far-fetched, right? That's exactly what God does, right? People who speak every language in the planet, more or less, all gathered in one place, added to the church, scattered by persecution, so that what will happen? The gospel spreads, and what are you saying, Paul? Okay, so that we see Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses, and the gospel will go forth into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to where? The uttermost parts of the earth. And that's what the book of Acts is, the unfolding of the gospel going first to the Jews, then to the Samaritans, then to the Gentiles, and then all over pretty much the known world. Um, and so we see sort of the unfolding of the history of the early church. Um, he talks about ten principles about the early church here. We obviously are familiar with the ministry of Paul and all the things that he does. Um, Paul the Apostle, not Paul the Hessler, just to clarify. Uh, so I, see, I say here, note ten principles about the early church. We want to consider why they're important and how does that compare to churches today. Do we fulfill the vision that's laid out in the book of Acts? And were you saying something? Oh, I, I saw something out of the corner of my eye. I don't know. It was probably Evan's hand and I thought it was yours. Um, so 
when we were talking about the book of Acts, one of the things, one of the challenges is, is it history or is it what we're supposed to do? And the answer is yes. It is history, but there is a pattern being set in many cases that still bears relevance for today. Um, but we do have to be careful about those things. That being said, let's talk about these ten ideas that he mentions here. First of all, he says the church's very existence unifies around the message of a Savior and Lord. Uh, someone will read 2 Corinthians 4 or 5, maybe for us. Paul? And then while he's looking that up, Romans 10, 9, who can get that one? Bob? And 1 Corinthians 12, 3? Evan, okay. Go ahead, Paul. Okay, so we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Okay. So what is the church about? The guy up front, cool music, what? Jesus, right? Okay, Bob? If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, so how does salvation come? Confession about Jesus, belief in him as Lord. Okay, Evan? Mm hmm, yeah. Evan? Okay, so the Holy Spirit works to help us to believe in and proclaim that same message. He says, these Christians respect and defer to worldly authority to a point, but their ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. Quite honestly, that's why, why empires have feared Christianity. Not that they are a threat politically, but because if you have people who won't give their ultimate allegiance to you, you always have to wonder about, you always have to wonder about them, right? And um, this, was a pro this was a problem for the Romans, and it's been a problem ever since for various governments, that believers, yes, they will respect the laws and honor God because the principles laid out in Scripture, but their king is not whatever the king is, whoever the king is. Their king is ultimately Jesus. Uh, should this hold true today, being unified around the message of a Savior and Lord? What sort of things does the church tend to be unified around today? Okay, be more specific than the world, if you would. Pleasing the world. Pleasing the world. And what do we mean by the world? Non-believers. Okay. And what sort of things would be pleasing to them? Everything natural. Okay. Watering down the gospel. Okay. Not making sin a priority. Okay. Preaching against sin is a priority. Okay, so we could sum it up as changing the message, right? Yes. So it's not about Jesus as Lord, it's about... God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? There's a degree to which that's true, but it's not true in the way that it's sometimes presented. Um, or the idea that Jesus just wants to come along and fix your marriage, fix the fact that you're broke, fix the fact of whatever is messed up in your life, Jesus is going to kind of come fix it for you. And while following Jesus does help us have principles and help for, for working through a lot of those things, the reality is sometimes our lives become a lot more difficult if we follow Jesus, and so it's not this, this cure-all for all of the, the ills of society. Um, what are other ways that, um, that we tend to, uh, other things that the church tends to focus on instead of this message of Jesus as Savior and Lord? And it's connected with changing the message. It's connected with some of the things we were just saying. Devin? Okay. Yeah, so that becomes the thing that is most important to people. 
whether it's you have the traditional and the contemporary service, whether it's you, um, I mean, Rick Warren went so far as to say, all right, we're targeting ages 40 to 50 who like easy listening music, who are primarily Caucasian. Like, you can't plan a church that, I mean, you can, but you shouldn't. The church is supposed to be, ultimately, people from all over, different backgrounds, whatever. The thing that unifies us is not we all look the same, like the same music, do the same stuff, but that we're all united around Jesus as Savior and Lord, right? Uh, what's that? His word. Right, His Word, yeah. Okay, let's go to the second one then. Christians are ordinarily united to individual but interconnected churches. He points out that at first that you have the Jerusalem church and everybody's kind of connected with that one. Then people end up being scattered. Uh, Philip explains the gospel, for example, to the Ethiopian eunuch. But this is more like missions, frontier, sort of the, the, the beginnings of things. It's not the way it's supposed to stay indefinitely. Quickly, churches were planted in Antioch, Iconium, Corinth, and so on. They continue to communicate, identify with, and serve one another in times of need, even across international, even across national or even international borders. So, uh, Christians are ordinarily united to individual but interconnected churches. That's clearly true in the book of Acts. Should that still be true today for the church? What does that look like? Well, there is one church, and that is Jesus Christ. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so we have this reality that the church transcends both time and geography. So there's a sense in which the church is something that extends backward and forward and outward. But there's also the reality that at the present moment, the church is probably thousands, if not tens of thousands, of local congregations collectively that are the church, but individually also are the church. And the reality of why I think God organized it that way is it's all well and good to say you're a part of the church, but so many of the things that the New Testament calls you to do can't be carried out in a generic sort of way with the church 500 miles away. They have to be carried out in a local place with, with believers. So, Christians are ordinarily united to individual but interconnected churches. And this point has been driven home to me in the last four years um, in a 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 kind of way when we had needs there were people who met those needs when Maggie was sick, when Kelly was sick, during COVID, all those sorts of things. And I get, think you get to see that in a smaller congregation setting in a way that you don't see it in a church of 500 or 1,000 people that's sort of an entity unto itself, which is not to say there's no ministry relationships, but larger churches tend not to be dependent on those ministry relationships in the same way that smaller churches are. And I think that's a good thing. So I think we still see this today. Uh, third thing, Christians collectively identify themselves as churches. Um, how about, uh, I'll just give you some examples. Saul began to destroy the church, Acts 8.3. News of this reached the church, Acts 11.22. Barnabas and Saul met with the church, Acts 11.26. The church was earnestly praying, Acts 12.5. The church sent them on their way, Acts 15.3. They were welcomed by the church, Acts 15.4. Now, these are all different local congregations, but all seen as part of the church and all identified as the church. So is it important for a church to identify as the church? Yes. Okay. Uh, fourth one. Christians possess a special power and corporate identity when formally assembled. Now, um, someone read 1 Corinthians 5.4, if you would. 1 Corinthians 5.4, who'd like to do that? Thanks, Devin. 
Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Okay. And the larger context is, there's a guy that's committing gross immorality with presumably his stepmom, um, and they say that's wrong, and uh, he needs to be dealt with. But Paul says a very interesting thing, that there's this idea of authority with the church is assembled. Paul's authority, the Spirit's authority, the church gathered has a special authority, in this case, to expel someone from membership because of sin that has not been dealt with. Now, if you and I think that someone is sinning in the church, do you or I individually have the authority to say, all right, Ben, you're out of the church because you lied last week? No. Why? Because we're one body, okay, and? Scripture identifies how you deal with that. Okay. So there's a process, we're one body. It's not something that you and I can just individually decide. The same is true for assessing people's uh, conversion, the reality of their walk with Jesus, which is connected with the sin idea, um, because you and I don't have sufficient wisdom, knowledge, authority in and of ourselves to assess all of that. I'm not saying you can't have an opinion on it. I'm saying the church does not take action simply one person saying, all right, we're going to, so-and-so is no longer part of the church. It has to be a collective decision by the assembly to say, this person is not walking as a believer. Um, so there's this authority gathered that is different from the authority separate individually. Uh, the first step of the Christian life is baptism always. Okay, that's the fifth thing. Paul says in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized. Now, that doesn't mean that being baptized is, how do I put this? Being baptized does not have merit that saves you before God. What Jesus and what he has done is sufficient for salvation. And yet, not being baptized is the exception rather than the rule. Now, there are gaps, and a lot of the reason there are gaps in the book of Acts is because it takes time for this message to spread geographically to all of these places. The concept of baptism was not unfamiliar to people living in the first century. The idea that it was associated with repentance was not an unfamiliar idea because they had seen that with John the Baptist and with others. The unique thing about Christian baptism was that it was repentance, a sign of repentance, but it was also associated specifically with Jesus and not just with John the Baptist or with some sort of Jewish rituals or any of those sorts of things. And so um, we see examples of this. Saul got, gets up and is baptized. The Philippian jailer, he and his household are baptized. The Corinthians who were Paul believed and were baptized. Uh, now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name, Acts twenty two sixteen. So baptism is a public identity marker of following Christ. Yes? Just real quick, I'm trying to remember... Was the first baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit after the resurrection? Um, I'm not sure if I'm following your question. So, when we baptize today, we say it's a picture of the death and the resurrection. Yes. So, I was trying to, I can't remember if that was first noted after the resurrection. So we have rituals associated with the act of baptism that are perhaps not, that are perhaps more implications of Scripture than clear statements of Scripture. Um, 
So I think the idea of it being identification with Christ's death and resurrection would probably be more closely tied to maybe like Romans 6 and 8 than it would be to a specific practice of the early church in the book of Acts. Does that answer your question? But I don't think it's a bad thing. I'm just saying I think it's more of an application of those passages. Paul? I, I struggle with the first step in baptism. Okay. Wouldn't the first step be repentance? Um, baptism is your public outflow of that. But okay. But it says of the Christian life. So of the Christian life. You're already born. Yeah, so he's basically saying repentance and faith is the point at which you turn and trust in Christ. The first step immediately following that ought to be baptism. Okay, yeah. So it could be worded maybe a little bit more clearly. But yeah, the, the basic idea is, unlike today where there's this idea that you trust Jesus and you're sort of a free-floating entity, you don't get baptized, you don't become a part of a church, he's saying when you look at the New Testament, this is the pattern. Very shortly, I mean, the the the... Philip and the guy from Ethiopia, they're in the chariot. He, he trusts Jesus. Now, the passage doesn't actually say that he trusts Jesus, but I think it's very strongly implying it based on all that we've seen to Acts up to that point. He's like, here's water. Why don't I get baptized? Okay, let's do it. You know, right? They're in the middle of the desert. He doesn't even wait until he gets back to where he's from. It's just there's a sense of let's do this. There's also an interesting sense of people get into arguments about how many people have to be there for baptism to really make a difference. We know that there was at least three people, right? With the, with the Ethiopian, right? You got Philip, you got the Ethiopian, and you got the guy driving the chariot. How do we know? Because there's no way he's reading the scroll and driving the chariot at the same time, right? So there's at least one witness, right? That's true. A little harder when, it's, when your tablet is really huge. Um, all right. Number, uh, number six. Christians are commanded to separate themselves from and not formally associate with the world. Paul does not forbid relationships with non-Christians. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 10, there's this whole discussion of if you're going to escape all the wicked people in the world, you'd have to go out of the world. So the point is not to leave, all the, leave the world entirely, but to recognize that when people who are part of the church act like people in the world, there's a problem that needs to be dealt with. So... Um, not being yoked together with unbelievers, which the idea of partnership, we tend to apply to marriage, but that's not actually the primary focus in that passage. It's more just generally are believers having close connections with unbelievers in a way that ignores the fact that they're unbelievers. Uh, just as God wanted a clear line between Israel and other nations, God requires a clear, bright line between the church and the world. So, what does this then imply in terms of the church today? And what does that look like in the church today, this idea of not being a part of the world? We, talked, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but... Uh, whole membership pro uh, process. Okay. To make sure you're not having unbelievers part of your membership. Okay. So this touches on why we're a Baptist church and not a congregational church. The idea of regenerate church membership seems pretty clearly taught in Scripture, which is to say you've got to be a Christian before you can be a part of the church. There's no real sense in which you can be a member of the church or baptism as a child has any significance unless you first trusted in Jesus. And people get into arguments about this, but it's one of those things where, yeah, you've got to believe in Jesus, then get baptized, not just, you know, some other kind of a thing. Okay? Um... What does separation from the world look like for the church today? Well, 
Rob? Fruit of the Spirit. Okay, fruit of the Spirit. I think this is a question that we struggle with because we tend to want to make it about external markers. And at the end of the day, you and I do a lot of the things that unbelievers do. Um, and that might rub us the wrong way for me to put it like that. We go to work. We wear clothes. We eat food. So what really is different? What's really the difference that marks us off? Evan? Okay. Okay, what's the main goal of our lives, Bruce? We pray for what the Lord provides for us every day. Okay. So an attitude of prayer and dependence on God, Bob? I just say for you know, today's language, our why. Okay, explain. Why we, well, so in business, you know, why do you do what you do? Sure. Why do you, why are you in this profession? Why do you do it a certain way? In most people, it's, you know, very self-centered. At least ours, ours should be for his honor, for his glory. So our why is completely uh, focused on him and not on ourselves. Yeah. And that should affect not just what we do, obviously, yeah. at work or at church, but the whole rest of the week. So you could work really hard to make money and earn a living, but the reason that you're doing it, it should be different. Is Okay. Paul? The world should look at us as being odd. Yeah. Different. Why do you do the things you do? You know, the piggyback of a bus about the yeah. Even when we're doing the same things that yeah. they're doing. Right, Jim. Uh, the Holy Spirit and, and His work in, in purifying us and, and getting us closer to Him, I think that's the Okay, so there's a, there's a, it's clear that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us and, and, and working through us. Okay, good. Um, number seven, the life and authority of the local church shape and orient the lives of its members. Um, the Christian life began with the authoritative framework. Individuals were baptized, added, gathered. From there, they oriented their lives around other members of the church. Was this pattern unique to those first months? The Antioch church's generosity with the Jerusalem church suggests otherwise, along with things like Lydia's generosity with traveling missionaries. So what we witness in those first months give the detailed picture, which didn't need to be repeated again and again in the records of the following years. So what does this look like today? Because this is one of those things that I think we, we tend to kind of get a little prickly about. If somebody says the life and the authority of the church should be, how did he put it, shapes and orients the lives of its members. Bob? I guess, the, I mean, it seems that that authority aspect is how the accountability is acted out. Okay. And without that, even when somebody is saved, there's, there's not order, there's not, um, I, I want to limit it to rules, but there's not a sense of uh, devotion to a, to a cause, it's still self-centered. So having that authority gives the ability to 
have that structure and to have that order. And I mean, we all need that accountability, not just in not doing what we shouldn't do, but in doing what we should. And without that, not likely to happen. Okay, Paul? The things like the commitments that we uh, have in our church. Sure. Those should drive our daily lives. Okay. That's just something that, you know, when we're here, that's what we do. Right. We're actually committing to live this way. Sure. Okay. That should drive uh, most of our decisions as we go by. Okay. I think one of the struggles, too, and some of this has to do with geography and some of this has to do with just American culture, the American culture side of it is we tend to be fiercely individualistic. Here's me and my stuff and my family, and here's everybody else. And so our culture is very different than the culture in which the church was established. And it's not just a cultural difference, but a philosophical difference um, connected with that. Um, is this idea of we use often, I think, geography as an excuse. Well, so-and-so's 30 minutes away. It's too much hassle to get together, to spend time with each other during the week. So, you know, once a week on Sunday is good enough. I don't know that there is a biblical mandate for every individual to be in every other individual's house in the course of, let's say, two weeks' time frame. But... I do think, given the pattern of the early church, if it never happens, then I think we've lost something of the vision of what God wants the church to be in terms of it being actually like a family and not just a once a week kind of a get together, right? Paul, you were going to say something a second ago? Yeah, uh, you also have the denominational issue. Okay. So all these local churches are driving, you remember, they believe and act a certain way, and then you have those conflicts where well, they believe this, we don't believe that. Yeah. Where we should be unified in the body of Christ, we're divided by denomination. Yeah, so I mean there's an element to which we could have fellowship, but perhaps less a sense of partnership with churches that are also preaching the gospel. Because just there's practical differences. If you have a church that says here's how we're going to approach starting a church and your approach is very different, it's not going to work. That doesn't mean we have to act like they're unbelievers, right? Uh, I don't know who is next. Devin and then Bob. Bob, you can go first. I was just going to say on that note of gathering together, we found out that the Hesslers wouldn't be able to make it on the 14th, so we'll move it to the 21st for the hymnal party. Oh. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. That was an interesting segue. All right. <laughs> of May? Okay. Yeah, I mean, if the Hesslers aren't there, half the seniors are there, right? That's like the genome. Gotcha. Devin. Because we would do that for, like, if you there was someone in your family, they were sick, they needed help with their leaves or whatever it is, right? Unless there's a terrible relationship between you and that family member, you'd be there, right? And so, um, yeah. Uh, Norma.
Yeah. Are you thinking about maybe in some countries that aren't here? Like, do you have an example of one? Yeah, I'm not saying you're wrong, it's, but yes, the fact, uh, if, and that touches on a whole other thing, which is, well, we won't even get into all that, but yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. All right, um, for sake of time, we'll keep moving here. Christian leaders are made responsible for specific sheep. Someone want to read 1 Peter 5.2? 1 Peter 5.2, someone like to read that for us? Paul, thank you. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Okay. Um, and then Acts 20, 28 says a similar thing. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Why is membership important in light of these two verses? Paul? So you have a shepherd over you. Yeah. If there's a hundred sheep, he doesn't know which ones are his. He can't be responsible for them, right? One wanders off, one gets caught in some thorns, one falls off a cliff. I don't know if that was mine. Was it yours? Was it mine? I don't know. That's why fuzziness over church membership is a terrible thing for the spiritual health of the church and for the spiritual health of individual members. Um, okay. Uh, next one is Christians are responsible then to submit to specific leaders. Someone want to read Hebrews thirteen seventeen? Evan? Okay, so this is the flip side of the last one. If the leaders have to know who the members are, the members have to know who the leaders are, and there has to be a, a responsibility to follow. And I will clarify this very emphatically. The following is not, in the case of our church, you following me. It's you following what I'm saying to the extent that it lines up with what God has said in Scripture. Because if I ever stop preaching what the Bible says, you need to confront me about that. So the authority doesn't derive from me specifically. It's a delegated authority from God in connection with his word. And that's, I think, very important to remember because ultimately I'm supposed to be under Jesus serving you, not on my own, doing my own thing. Yes? And similarly in the home, right? The dad is typically the head. Yeah. As long as he's following what and teaching what Scripture says. Right. I mean, our children are not commanded by God to obey us if we are telling them to sin. Right. Yeah. To do things we don't like, yes, but to sin, no. Yes. Right. See you vegetables. Yes. Tina. Well, that's what it says. That our, our, uh, our roles are, you know. Right. Jesus, man's under Jesus. Right. Yeah. You know, God, and then I'm down the line. Right. But the, the, the point where this is important for membership is Members need to know who their leaders are. Leaders know, need to know who their, who their members are. 
And then the final thing is Christians exclude false professors, not like guys who teach at colleges, but people who say I'm a Christian, but aren't actually by the way that they live. So example for this, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.13, expel the wicked person from among you. Practical reality, you can't expel someone who isn't recognized to be a part of you. So if you've never taken that person in as a member, you really don't have any authority to put them out, right? Which is why membership is important. Um, and then the idea of uh, warning a divisive person, having nothing to do with them. When, and I think we need to be careful here. The whole subject of church discipline is a big topic. When it says have nothing to do with them, the idea is not maybe the Amish idea of shunning, but a reality of stop treating them as though they're Christians when they're not acting like it, right? So don't act like everything's okay and, and all of that. You, you're oriented, you're, your relationship with that person changes so that you treat them as though they need to start trusting Jesus for the first time. So we close with this. To be a Christian is to belong to a church. Would you agree? I mean, hopefully, after all the things we just looked at, you would agree. Yeah. If not, we'll keep talking through it. But um, <laughs> the point of all this is when we look and survey what membership looks like in the New Testament, it's not primarily about how do you keep records, right? Because ultimately that doesn't matter. It can be on a scroll. It can be on a parchment. It can be on a piece of paper. It can be on a computer. That is not important. The important thing is that there's a, an awareness that the church is under God, that the members know who the leaders are, the leaders know who the members are, what it's supposed to look like, all those sorts of things, and that we're all following through on what God, God's calling us to do as a church. So let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity to look at all of these things together. We pray that we would profit from having considered them and that we would uh, think about how we're living up to them or not and, and make changes appropriately with your help. We pray that you bless the service in a few minutes. In Christ's name, amen. Good to see you, Derek. Sorry I didn't send out the order of service till this morning. <laughs> No, that's fine. So are you wanting to do some kind of practice with them during Sunday school next week, or do you think we'll be good after Wednesday night, probably? I think we'll be good after Okay, Wednesday. I just wanted to clarify so I knew what the thought was, so... Yeah, my biggest concern is the microphone. The what? The microphones? Yeah. Oh, having them there, okay. Okay. Comes through clearly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Robert, you're here on tonight or uh, Wednesday night. To, you could look at the microphones, or is it Evans month? I can't remember. Yeah. No, you, you. Okay. So maybe you all can can work through that. So.
Hey, how are you? How are you doing today? Hi, hey, Jason. How are you doing? Good to meet you. Pray for him. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So I have to mention about the three other like a mega church. The government are some church that we didn't mention about. You mentioned that C three member. Thanks for coming today. Yeah. I'm getting yeah, thanks. I should turn the lights on in here. How you doing, Jim? Not bad. How you doing, Dan? Pretty good. 